Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. From an increasingly ebullient fourth floor of the CC building, <laughs> Intellection Shock Therapy, I'm Chris Moore. And joining me on this Google Hangout are... Andy Bramson. And Matt Kukum. Guys, you know I'm excited. You know, I, I don't know why. But you usually are. The Big Ten is back, baby. <laughs> We're going to be playing some Big Ten football this year. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I saw that today. Yeah, Big Ten announced this morning. Well, they're going to announce. There's leaks all over the place. The <laughs> Big Ten schools are going to play an eight-game season, and they're going to qual- that's going to qualify them for uh, potential inclusion in a college football playoff. Right? Yeah. Now, wow. I have, as, as, as those of you who've listened to this podcast, the 252 know, I have a complicated relationship with college football. Um, <laughs> I love it. I think the word is tortured. I, what's that? I think the word is, <laughs> is tortured. No, not to, no, well, I torture myself. <laughs> I, I love college football. I also intellectually recognize it's terrible as a social, um, a social instrument. And so I hate myself for loving it. And then I still yes. love it. Uh, but here's the thing. I there's a political angle to this because with the, the the Big Ten is, hasn't even officially made the announcement yet that they're going to have Big Ten football, but there's leaks all over the place. Donald Trump is already taking credit for it. So he has, <laughs> yeah, he has tweeted. Uh, um, so glad Big Ten's playing football this year. Happy I was able to help. Which, which, which means one of two things, and I, I want to be—I'm kind of being serious here for a second. We're going to get to our, our main topic in a minute, but here's my here's, here's what I'm, I want to be serious about. That means one of two things: either he's just straight up lying, and he had nothing to do with the Big Ten deciding to play a attenuated football season, or there was actual pressure coming from the White House to get the Big Ten to play a football season. And I have to be honest, that would not surprise me. No, because uh, he had said previous things like publicly, like how he's he like he wants people to play football, um, yeah, and yeah. he's you know been very opinionated about it. So it wouldn't surprise me if there was some sort of back channel, you know, make football great again, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, about, strategy. States that Donald Trump desperately needs to win to retain the presidency. He needs to win Pennsylvania. He needs mm-hmm. to win Ohio. He needs to win Michigan. And if all three of those go for Biden, he's basically lost the race. Yeah. So. The question comes is, if the Big Ten's not playing football in November, how many people take out that level of frustration on the president at the polls? And the number is not zero, right? right. It may not be a huge number of voters, but this was this is a, a barometer for measuring dissatisfaction with, uh, with popular life. And so people having right. an Ohio State-Michigan to cheer for might make them more likely to vote for the incumbent. Yeah. Do you buy that? Yep. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, because, I mean, the... Um, it's it's unfair, perhaps, but incumbents are blamed for everything, yep. um, earthquakes, natu- natural disasters, um, <laughs> you know, uh, the, the thing itself, not just a response to it. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. insofar as this election is a referendum on Trump and his handling of COVID and the shutdowns and all the fallout, 
you know, the more people are frustrated with the situation, um, the more likely they are to take that out upon the incumbent. That's sort of basic political science 101. So to the extent, yep. you know, people are able to have their college football, which a lot of people love some college football, and, and I, I'm also one of those people. Um, yeah, this this could help them on the margins. Um, I'd be curious to see if there's any real political science research that comes out of that. That would be really cool. So. It'd be difficult to measure, right? Because you're trying to get it yeah. like that basic – like people feel marginally better and that then maybe shifts some of their votes or some of their likelihood to turn out to vote, probably more likely. Um, I would actually go with point with option C though, in terms of like reading the Trump, the Trump tweet about this, which is he probably didn't, I would be kind of surprised if they were like behind the, the scenes, like really leaning on the big 10. But on the other hand, I, I do think, I mean, he, because he's out there having said these things, he's going to say like, Hey, I was out there saying this, um, and they listened, and I'm glad I, I weighed in. Um, so I, my guess is it's that more indirect influence. So it's not, a, I wouldn't call it a lie, but I would also say I doubt, you know, he had much to do with it other than his previous, like, things we could read on his Twitter. Yeah, so perhaps the best sort of, uh, you know, politics, political science term that we could use to describe this is the bully pulpit, right? Um, the president <laughs> is... I like the, the laugh however much you want. That. Yeah, <laughs> three months you want. I mean, the president has, you know, the biggest microphone, and this yep. is true yep. prior to Trump, right? And you know, the president Absolutely. gets out there and makes a splash and says, you know, I want X, Y, or Z to happen. You know, he, yes. you know, president can't make it happen by fiat, but, um, but that sort of, you know, pressure from the White House can can be enough to sort of nudge something one direction right. or the other. Not in every instance, but it's it's a thing. It's a real phenomenon. Yep. Given the fact I, – I'm, I'm holding to, I think, a stronger line because given the fact we know there were senators from Big Ten states directly calling for the Big Ten to play games this year, mm. I wouldn't surprise me if there was a call from the White House to the Big Ten commissioner saying, this needs to happen. And I think this, there's a little there's, – there's a significant level of risk in this because – Although the Big Ten was able to sort of sit back and watch a bunch of other schools open, some schools have opened fairly effectively. <clears throat> I might toot our horn and say Bethel seems to have done a pretty good job opening up. Uh, other schools, not so much, looking at you, Alabama. Uh, but um, <laughs> there, there seems to be this sort of um, variance. And maybe the, I think the Big Ten is saying, okay, we now think this is worth a calculated risk. But this could all come crashing down by mid-October. And if it does... Um, the stop, start, stop would be much worse than just not going in the first place. Right. right. Yeah. So I guess it depends a little bit on how how they're handling the actual games, like how much distancing there is and, and you know, the capacity of the stadiums and, and all of that. So. Yep. All right, friends, let's get to our actual topic today. We're not going to leave the Big Ten, but we're going to hone in on the land of the Golden Gophers. We uh, here. Can, can I just ask? Like, I'm not the native Minnesota. I mean, none of us are native Minnesotans, but we I'm the not. new guy, so I get to ask you all this question. Sorry. Oh, good. What? Why the Golden Gophers? I mean, why Gophers in particular, and why are they golden? Well, let's throw Please that over to our explain. one uh, graduate from the University of Minnesota, Sam Mulberry. Why yeah, native Minnesota? Um, I don't know, and I'm <laughs> I'm I'm embarrassed that I don't know. Um, why the Gophers specifically? Uh, if my brother's listening to this, who's who also graduated from the U of M and has uh, worked at the U of M, I'm sure he would tell us the whole history of this. Golden just makes it a little better, though. 
Right. I don't think there is such a thing as a golden gopher, like like as a breed of gopher. But I think the fact that they're golden just just makes us a little bit better. And part of it, I will say, um, well, I lived in Alabama for one year in 1999, um, and and when I was down there, the the students would make fun of the golden gophers as a football team. Um, but that year, the uh, the gopher football team, which wasn't great, beat the number one team in the country, and it was really great to lord it over them that a team with a silly name like the Golden Gophers could beat the number one team in the country. And that's the only time it's probably ever happened, would be my guess, right? It's pretty rare. It's pretty rare. We're not good. <laughs> not usually, no. So we're going to uh, – thanks, thanks, Sam, for dropping yeah. in. <laughs> so Wikipedia informs us that um, – Wikipedia says that it's because we're the gopher state, and so we're just kind of going off that. And then this goes back to 1887. So that's my my quick Ooh. sort of internet take on this. But okay, I don't that's know more details. Really satisfying, but all right, fine. Yeah. Anyway, sorry I derailed this. Please go ahead. Tell no, us about okay. tell us about Minnesota. So Minnesota has gotten a little bit more press coverage than it usually receives in a given presidential election cycle this year, and that and that is because. Uh, I'll, I'll make the joke here, but West, West <laughs> East Coast elites um, are stunned to find out that there are people in Minnesota who vote and have opinions. Uh, no, um, right. in all seriousness, there has been a, a conception for, for years that Minnesota is just a solidly blue state. And that has borne out by our track record. We've voted for uh, a Democrat for president for the longest streak of any country or any state voting for a Democrat. And that includes Walter Mondale, who uh, Sam reminds me is the only, was the only state to vote for Mondale uh, um, back in the eighties. And so we, uh, we have this long track record of voting for Democrats, but Donald Trump came within tens of thousands of votes of capturing Minnesota in 2016. It was a very close race. Minnesota has elected, uh, uh, Republican governors in recent memory. We've elected Republican senators in recent memory. And the state is decidedly purple. And people are realizing that now. So they're starting to cover this. Plus, there was a story in Politico uh, um, noting that Donald Trump is very interested in trying to compete in Minnesota. He feels like, and he has said on the on the stump, that if I'd given one more speech in Minnesota, I would have won Minnesota too. And I'm not sure if that's true, uh, but it certainly was a very close race. And yeah. I'm wondering if we can begin to explain a little bit about why. I wonder if we can begin to explain a little bit about um, what is shifting in Minnesota that has allowed it to become a closer, more purple state, and what that might tell us about other shifts, maybe the Midwest, maybe nationally, uh, that would help inform this 2020 race. So let's start with the Twin Cities. But gentlemen, what what sh demographic shifts and what voting shifts do you observe uh, here in the Twin Cities? Yeah, so I, I mean, I, I can lead off here. I'm not a Minnesotan, but I have two Minnesotan children, so, so maybe that helps. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I think what's interesting about Minnesota, and we'll start with the cities, but like also talk about the out country too. Here is that in many ways, what we see here is reflective of trends we're seeing nationally, right? Which is that um, urban areas, so like the Twin Cities, and to some extent suburban areas as well, like the, the suburbs of the Twin Cities, are becoming more democratic, right? They are voting more um, blue, right? And so even as Minnesota as a state, I think you're right, be, is becoming more purple, although I would, I'll argue it's more of a blue-tinged purple still, right? But 
but they're becoming more purple, right? Um, the cities are not, right? They're actually becoming much more blue. Um, and so what we're getting is like actually higher vote totals for the Democratic Party here, right? Um, part of that is the kind of demographics we're seeing with cities, right? You have a higher percentage of minorities in the inner cities. Um, they are much um, more diverse than the state as a whole. When you get out of the cities, the state becomes much whiter um, as compared to the state as a whole, right? So there's a, a, a pretty um, big divide there, right? So you get this kind of sorting, right, where people are moving to um, you know, the places that, where they have an affinity. Um, and so you, you know, there's, there's a, that move, uh, when you get to the out country, um, parts of it, and, and there's different variations, parts of it have been traditionally, traditionally Republican. So what the Washington Post calls greater Minnesota has traditionally been Republican, but same kind of extreme factors happening where they're becoming much more so, right? Um, they used to be a little bit Republican and now it's kind of overwhelmingly so. Um, and so you're getting this kind of move where the different parts of Minnesota are gravitating kind of more in the directions um, that they have gone. Now, the Iron Range is another story, and we'll get to that in a few minutes, but that that is actually shifting. I mean, it's actually switching kind of sides. Um, but but that's what the, my sort of short version on um, what's going on with the cities. I don't know if Matt wants to add to that. I think that's great. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll just add, too, uh, uh, while you guys sort of think about other areas radiating out, radiating out from the from the cities, this tell this shows us or tells us how Minnesota can simultaneously have or within recent memory can have some of the most conservative members of Congress and also yep. the most liberal members of Congress. Within the last, within my time in Minnesota, and I'm not native Minnesotan either, but I've been here for um, a little over a decade. And in that decade, right. Minnesota sent Michelle Bachman to Congress and we sent Ilhan Omar to Congress. Right. And you don't get a whole lot different than that on the political ideology spectrum, right? right. Um, that's because different parts of the state are voting for different people. And so, yeah. uh, the, the the center of the Twin Cities, the districts around within the Twin Cities are um, profoundly safe Democratic seats and yep. are very conservative or very liberal, excuse me, very progressive. And the outer lying suburbs, especially the exurbs of the Twin Cities, have shifted to be quite socially conservative. And um, that's where Michelle Bachman held her seat for a time being. Right. right. Yeah. Although perhaps a way, I mean, way to think about this is it's less that the excerpts have become significantly more socially conservative in absolute terms. They have become more socially conservative in relative terms because the Democratic parties within or the Democratic Party within the core of the cities, um, as you see in many other states, has become so much more liberal. So now the far outlying areas, yeah, they are becoming more conservative in in certain respects, um, socially perhaps. But really, it's not because people are having radically different views on on social issues like abortion or um, no. you know sexual orientation or whatever. Like people's views on that actually are on the whole tending to be more liberal, but they are not they're not moving in the direction nearly as much as um, sort of the identity and progressive politics sort of driven, you know, ideology yeah. that you see in, in the heart of these, these large uh, metropolitan areas. And th this is a trend that's true, not merely of Minnesota, but of, um, you know, but in other states with large metropolitan areas as well. Yep. Yep. So we're drawing some inspiration for this podcast from a nice piece that was written by Dave Weigel on the 13th uh, in the Washington Post. And that piece was titled, The Five Political States of Minnesota. Yep. And we've identified one of those states right now, which is the central Twin Cities, uh, which has trended to be very progressive, 
uh, so much so that honestly, the the only uh, real meaningful election is the is the Democratic primary, right? Um, right. And then we've identified the second state, which is the suburbs surrounding the Twin Cities, which in some ways, for a variety of reasons, whether it's a white flight to suburbs, whether it's, the as, as Matt identified, sort of the drifting nature of the Democratic Party, but also the reorientation of the Republican Party around right. Trump, that area has become more, um, has become relatively more conservative. But there are three other states I want to identify, and I'm clear on one and less clear on the other two that we, that Weigel identifies. So Andy, you mentioned the Iron Range. Right. And if, you, if, if you're thinking about Minnesota geography or you're thinking about American geography, the Iron Range is the northeast part of the, of the state of Minnesota. It borders the, um, it borders the lake uh, and it borders uh, Canada and it borders <laughs> the upper peninsula of Michigan. Um, I'm sorry, not the it borders the um, it borders uh, sort of Wisconsin across the lake, right? Yeah. Um, and it's um, it's called the Iron Range because its traditional industries included mining and yeah. uh, forestry, and that area has was traditionally, even in the time that when I first moved here, represented by sort of socially conservative Democrats, and mm-hmm. now it's shifted, and it's primarily becoming a stronghold for Donald Trump and for the Republican Party. What has induced that change? I think in part, I think, I mean, so part of it is what Matt's just talked about, the fact that you've gotten the Democratic Party going further to the left on a lot of issues, and it's just, you're you're making it um, difficult slash impossible for some people who, you know, used to vote for them for other reasons, economic reasons, to go that direction. I think the other thing that is a big deal in the Iron Range is this sense that the Democratic Party has is putting too many restrictions on the kind of industry they do, um, that they are too captive to kind of the environmental lobby, um, and that that's driving policies in a way that's you know economically harmful um, to the Iron Range, and so they they have been moving away from the Democratic Party for that reason. So, for example, I mean, the last Democrat who won there um, as a representative who just, you know, retired, Rick Nolan, retired in 2018, right? Um, Nolan was known as, you know, I mean, on the one hand, he's, he's a pretty liberal Democrat in a lot of things, but he was also a protector of mining interests, right? He was somebody the miners trusted. Um, I think they had that deep trust in Rick Nolan, who had a long... And advocate for the Second Amendment. Was that? And an advocate for the Second Amendment. And, and an advocate for the Second Amendment, right? So he's, a, so he's a liberal Democrat on certain things, but on certain key issues like mining, Second Amendment, for the Iron Range, he was, you know, much more in tune with his district than the National Democratic Party. Um, They trusted Nolan to do that, right? I don't think that trust is there for the next generation of Democrats, especially as they see a National Democratic Party that they just increasingly find it hard to identify with. And so, you know, for example, you get these six mayors from the Iron Range, right, who endorsed Donald Trump, one of whom speaks at the Republican convention, right, as a Democrat, um, saying like, yeah, I'm a Democrat, but I no longer find myself relating to my national party. Um, and I think that in some ways symbolizes kind of what's going on with that shift. I have a question. I, again, I'm, I always, I always feign ignorance here as the international relations guy. But one of the things I would yeah. suppose or hypothesize is that over time, the um, number of people employed in mines, in taconite mines and iron mines in northern Minnesota, and the number of people involved in forestry has declined. Those industries yeah. still define the region, but they're not right. employing many people in the region. 
and in particular, unions right. associated with the, with with miners have declined in terms of political influence. We might have said that the reason why these areas were this area was democratic fifty years ago was because of strong labor unions associated with those with those industries, and those have really weakened. Is that a fair is that a fair explanation for why uh, the Democratic Party has lost its grasp on the Iron Range? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean the I've not studied this super closely, but I mean the erosion of uh, I mean so labor unions have been in decline for various reasons. Um, yeah. One of them is that there has been sort of a change in the sort of the the legal regime that governs them. Um, so now labor unions. I mean, there's some big Supreme Court cases on this in relatively recent U.S. history that basically stated that labor unions could not force people to sort of join when they are hired right. by a company and then pay dues, right? So it's purely mm -hmm. voluntary now. Um, and a lot of people basically wanted to, so so that means, you know, that automatic support, that inflow of money into labor unions is is no longer, it's no longer there. It's no longer guaranteed. Part of the reason for the push for that um, is because a lot of labor unions became so politically active um, and, and active in politics in ways that go, that went far beyond simply, um, advocating for the particular interests of their industry and of the workers in that industry and a lot of a lot of these you know to advocate for like very socially liberal issues right so you have these you know traditional sort of um sort of blue collar workers um who are not you know progressive um at least right. on social issues mm -hmm. you know they're basically forced to give you know give money and be a part of a labor union that is advocating for things that they disagree with and they want out right um yep. and the supreme court said yeah they should be forced to they should be forced to do this and so you've seen this erosion of the power of labor unions um and that that frees up people to um you know to to cast their support behind, you know, the candidates that they think best represent them, as opposed to right. sort of falling in line with what the labor unions are doing and and giving them, you know, labor unions money that can be used to endorse, you know, and support the traditional Democrats, um, which is, you know, what you had seen for, for decades, right? So I'm not sure how much this has played into, you know, the particular case of miners in the Iron Range I, probably has some effect. Um, mm -hmm. But I think, too, it just goes back to the general trend that, you know, a lot of a lot of yep. people in the Iron Range, you know, they have, you know, they are not they are not progressive in the way that sort of the Minnesota Democratic Party is going. Right. And so so they don't feel at home anymore in in the Minnesota Democratic Party, which is sort of, you might say, beginning to leave its its traditional sort of farmer labor roots, um, which is what was originally yep. the case for years here in Minnesota. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're right now you see this, you know, the DFL so-called here in Minnesota, right, is is grounded in you know its bases now in the cities. Right. But you're right, Matt. I mean, I think that the the kind of Democratic Party you have there is very different than what you have historically in Minnesota. Um, and that's why I mean, like, again, a guy like Rick Nolan. Right. He still was drawing votes in the Iron Range. He was still winning. He, he had a tough election in 2016, but he still won um, because he was that old kind of Democrat. In fact, his his service in Congress dates back to before kind of the Reagan revolution, right? He's, he initially had served six years back in the seventies, right? In the early 80, up to 81. Um, and then he kind of came back after a 32 year break, right? Which is kind of a fun story, but um, you know, he, I think you get that big shift with the Reagan coming, um, you get these so-called Reagan Democrats. And that's a lot of those kind of labor union types who are, you know, Democrats for these very specific economic reasons, but are not down with kind of their, their sense of the party's drift leftward on, on social issues. Right. Um, and, you know, I mean, like personal example, right? I mean, my, my wife's grandma, 
um, was a farmer, you know, right? and her family, the, the family was farmers, right? They were very committed Reagan or um, like, you know, labor farmer type Democrats, right? And Democrats, because Democrats worked out, looked out for the common man. They look out for working people, people like us. Um, and so that was, you know, how she came up in the thirties and forties as a voter. Right. Um, but that, that sense shifted right over time because as she got more uncomfortable um, with, you know, how, you know, how the democratic party was changing, right. On, on social issues. Um, and I think that's, you know, there's a, there's a number of those kind of people out there in the electorate. And that's what we're seeing with these kind of people who used to be Democrats in what we call out country Minnesota, right? Outside of the cities. Yeah. And this is true, just not of the Iron Range, but the other sort of um, sort of regions, you might say, of Minnesota, sort of greater Minnesota, yep. which is primarily in, you know, the, the western part of the state, um, right, which yep. is predominantly Republican. And also yep. true of southeast uh, Minnesota yep. as well, which is becoming Republican as well, with the exception of Rochester, which is home to um, home to the Mayo Clinic. Um, and and sort of a yep. center for, you know, really highly educated um, people right. who right. are increasingly liberal, right? So so mm -hmm. beyond these little city centers, what you have is, um, I, Minnesota is is an exemplar of a trend that we're seeing nationwide, right? Yep. Um, this rural-urban divide in which the Democratic Party sort of hunkers down, gets um, more safe seats, more control, more entrenched in the core of metropolitan city centers, right? Um, yep. And the Democratic parties in these city centers, not just in Minnesota and elsewhere, are becoming more progressive, more liberal. Um, and people are moving to these cities um, and tending to sort of, uh, you know, get on board with these sorts of with these sorts of policies um, and identity politics. But that sort of leaves the people out in in the rural areas and, and perhaps the excerpts as well, feeling no longer at home um, in in the Democratic Party, which look used to sort of look out for the interests of the little guy, the the yep. the, the blue collar worker, the farmer, the person without education, these people will sort of feel left high and dry, um, yeah. rightly or wrongly. Um, and along comes uh, a personality by the name of Donald Trump, who sweeps in um, with a very sort of populist um, appeal, yep. right? Appeals to these sorts of people, mm -hmm. um, and and wins them in droves, right? And so. Right. you're beginning to see up this potential realignment right and and right. minnesota is actually one of the best sort of the states that best sort of exemplifies this national trend yeah i want to pull apart uh two variables that have been talked about a lot and ask you to noodle on them a little bit and i know we don't have um access to our own polling data here so i'm actually asking you to think more about this theoretically one of the divides that Matt mentioned, I think it's really important for this race, is this rural-urban divide. And I think yep. you've got, I would I would push back on the characterization you gave. I think that it is true that Democrats in urban centers have become more progressive and that people who are moving to urban centers are often self-selecting to move to those places because of traits that correspond with urban progressivism. Uh, but I also think that the converse is true, that people are also leaving cities and leaving urban areas yeah. and progressive areas for their own self-selection reasons also. Correct. Right. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it, it cuts both ways. Absolutely. But that leads to a, to a related question, which is one of the things we're observing in this election is an increase, is a widening gap of um, uh, in terms of uh, college education. So Joe Biden has built up a pretty big lead. Now, it's not it's not a perfect correlation. There are plenty of college educated people who are, who are supporting Donald Trump, Absolutely. but the vast majority of college educated people are supporting Joe Biden. 
And that seems to be true across the United States, not just in Minnesota, but it is also true in Minnesota. Right. We should note, for example, the Iron Range has fewer college-educated people than the Minnesota right. average. The Twin Cities have a, have more college-educated people than the Minnesota average. Now, right. there's a simple explanation for this. It is simply the kinds of jobs for which you need a college education are located in cities. And so there's just a strong autocorrelation between uh, college education and and, mm -hmm. and, and and urban living. But is there a separate relationship? What I mean by that is, is there something about college education exogenous to location that is influencing um, preferences in this election, in this uh, presidential race? So, yeah, uh, it, I'm glad you brought this up because I was jotting some of my own notes along these lines too. Um, so, because obviously, I mean, so in, in political science, one of the difficulties in in doing our, our research is we have to tease out these variables that seem to be very closely related to each other. You know, you have these, you know, the the non-college educated folks tend to live in rural areas. And then you see all of these folks uh, tending to go Republican. So is it the fact that they're living in rural areas that explains this? Or is it the fact that they are not college educated that right. explains this? And teasing out the variables, it's really stinking difficult. So <laughs> one way to get some leverage yep. on that question, as Chris said, is to figure out, okay, is there something about college education itself that might be sort of driving this. Um, and there might be a few things that we can discuss. One thing is, you know, people who tend to go to college um, tend to leave college more liberal than when they began, right? Yep. Um, because of the way that, you know, that our you know, college general education um, curricula is structured um, because, uh, because of the sorts of, of sort of, um, yeah, I mean, it turns out college professors are overwhelmingly um, some of the most progressive people in the country, right? And they're, you know, students are getting exposed to that. Um, and so students leave, um, leave their their colleges, which are steeped in, in sort of progressivism, steeped in identity politics. Um, and and they, they leave with those experiences. They leave with um, exposure to new media outlets that tend to be more liberal as well right. um, and reading from more of those sources. And so, yeah, I think there is something particular about college education that tends to be, um, that is tending to drive some of this. Mm -hmm. Also add though, that this is not a settled topic. There was an interesting study. It's a, it's a whole, it's, it's a decade old now, but by uh, April Kelly Wissner and her uh, husband, Matt Wissner, uh, looking at uh, short-term effects of college, um, uh, college professors and their political orientations I sh it's worth mentioning, and this, this is sort of an interesting study. Uh, uh, the two authors are, are are husband and wife. One of them is also um, is self admittedly quite liberal, and the other one is self admittedly quite conservative. And they also teach in the same political science department, which must must make for fun department meetings. Uh, but what they um, oh, what yeah. they was does yeah. this have some kind of exogenous effect on their students? And essentially, what they observed is that there was limited effects in the very short term. Students who took the liberal professor's classes uh, showed a very slight tendency to being a little bit more liberal at the end of the class. Students who took the conservative professor's uh, classes moved slightly more conservative, but they basically rebounded within three months. And so students were not, uh, students were not long-term affected by their, at least in this particular case, their professor's political orientations for a long period of time. Um, which I actually find kind of, yeah. in some ways, 
in one way, I find it depressing, which is that maybe we're having no influence on in our students <laughs> at all. Uh, but, the, but actually, in some ways, I find it heartening because it means that um, perhaps I'm not, I need to be less concerned about sort of indoctrinating students, which is something I try very hard not to do. Um, but at any rate, I think that the general perception that Matt is pointing out is whether it's professors or whether it's simply the environment or whether it's the fact that um, college, because of the way, because of social networking, draws students into a, a more diverse social network. All of these things can have a liberalizing influence and I think make, moves people to the left. I think, I think that's true. Yeah. I'm not saying it makes everyone... Um pushes everyone radically, um, no, right. but it does tend to, you know, pull people, you know, the majority perhaps, um, depending again on the, this, the particular college that you're going to in a certain direction. Um, it's, you know, people don't tend to radically shift their ideologies all of that much. Um, there's political science research on this well, this as well, but when they do, it's usually during this period of life, this sort of coming of age period, um, especially when people you know go off to college and they're trying to figure out what they believe for themselves, right? So, yeah. so if anyone's going to shift their ideology, it's going to be college age students, um, and college age students, you know, going to college, right, um, is perhaps one of the most important sort of environs in which this sort of shift can occur, right? Because yeah away from their parents, you know, they're getting exposed to lots of new things. They're being right. challenged to think in ways that um, they they wouldn't get if they weren't going to college, right? You're not, yep. you know, if you're going to trade school or if you go, you know, straight into a job, you're not being challenged in the same way. So your preconceptions, right. your ideas aren't being, um, you know, aren't being tested, right? But when you go to college, um, you know, that's what college is supposed to do, right? Um, so yeah, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen to these folks. Yeah, and I think I would just add to that. I think that's right. And even for the many who don't radically shift, right, who just have a kind of more minor shift, um, what's happening, right, is you're, you're coming to see the world as an educated person as a more nuanced place, right, and a place where we can be less certain about certain things, right? So, for example, I mean, I'm getting ready to teach, you know, Plato's Republic, right? And that, I think one of the great things about, um, you know, Plato's Republic is it, it really – you know, it, it hones in on a really important question. What is justice, right? How do we know? But it also shows like it's difficult to really pin down, to really know, right? So we can we can say certain things about it. We can think about it in certain ways, right? But actually pinning down the nature of reality is surprisingly tricky, right? Um, and, and I think becoming educated is sort of, it is learning new things, but it's also even more than that, realizing that as you're learning new things, you're also learning even more how much you don't know. Right. And I think that does push you toward it kind of moderates your positions on certain things. Um, and in particular, I think tends to have that impact on our more conservative students. Uh, the only oh. thing I'll add, too, is that, um, you know, there was a season in which, you know, um, college educated people tended to be much more Republican. Right. Maybe yep. they weren't super socially conservative. Correct, um, right. But they were maybe a little bit more economically conservative, yes. and they definitely mm -hmm. tended to vote more Republican. Yep. Um, and part of the reason you're seeing this shift now um, is because uh, because you know the Republican Party, you know, is currently led by Donald Trump, who is very much a populist, right? And, and it tends to be the case that you know populist leaders um, have less support. Um, 
amongst people who have greater education, right? right. So when people who you know have greater education, they look at a populist sort of leader, not only the policies they're advocating, but the way they go about advocating them, the way they handle themselves or whatever, that's just not attractive to, co to the majority of college educated folks. And so they're gonna go where the alternative is, right? You couple that with the fact that you know, sort of the college experience tends to be a more progressive one. Um, you couple that with, you know, the the growing populism within the Republican Party. We'll see if that lasts past Trump. Put those right. two things together. And I think that's why you're seeing this sort of this sort of stark, um, stark divide. Mm -hmm. So I, I would, I would add some more shift, things, we would say. which is that um, college is increasingly economically stratifying as well. Yeah. Um, and not just in simple ways, not just simply, oh, you went to college, you're going to make more money. But literally the kinds of uh, economic issues you face are different as a result of college education. Right. People who attend a college, um, people who attend college tend to leave college now, or at least for the last couple of generations, with a significant amount of student loan debt. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, for those kinds of people, uh, government for government loans, government forbearance, uh, government um, um, alleviation of that kind of debt is a significant policy question, right? Yep. And that's something Democrats have been much more willing to provide um, relief on than the Republican side. Conversely, people who maybe went to trade school or didn't accumulate a lot of college debt, who um, maybe didn't go to college, that's not a concern for them in in any way, and you might actually argue that it's a it's a um, a reordering concern, because why should my tax dollars go to pay off your student loan bills? And right. also, yep. the, the kinds of jobs that people who the kinds of lucrative jobs people can land who are not college educated tend to be the ones that are also most deeply affected by globalization. And here we come back to things like the Iron Range, right? Yep. The people in the Iron Range aren't competing against people down the street. They're competing against people in China who are also right. mining iron. And so, and taconite and other sorts of things. And so um, they're, they're not worried about student loan debt. They're worried about their job disappearing. And that's where yep. Donald Trump has done a very good job saying these neoliberal policies pushed by the Democratic Party from Bill Clinton forward yep. are actually hurting you. I'm going to bring American jobs home. I'm going to fight a trade war with China. And that right. sounds pretty heartening to these former uh, union voters up in the Iron Range. Yep, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's why we see the whole discussion about student loan debt, like in forgiving that or finding free ways to offer free college, things like that. I mean, that's primarily coming from the left. Right. Um, and so they're they're you know, talking to their kind of constituency. Um, and Trump is doing a good job of talking to his, right? And then I think I would add in just to what you said, Chris, just the, the whole renegotiation with Canada, right, of NAFTA, um, I think fits that narrative as well. Hmm. Yep. So we have two other regions. We're running out of time here, but I'll just ask you if you have any comments on what Weigel calls, we mentioned greater Minnesota a little bit, but also the southeast of Minnesota. Southeast is sort of the era, area directly um, bordering Iowa. It's um, uh, Weigel reports it's a, it's a lower share of people living in cities. No kidding. A lower, yep. fewer uh, non-white residents. No kidding. Uh, and fewer college-educated residents. No kidding, right? But that, that yeah. sort of excluding Rochester a little bit. Yeah. But right. what is um, and this area was was won by Donald Trump in 2016, but it was reasonably close. So yep. is there, is there a way in which and we've had sort of conservative. Democratic uh, representation in these eras in recent memory. So, um, is there something shifting sort of in these more agricultural, more rural, 
wider, less college-educated areas that we haven't already sort of covered in our other discussions? I don't think so. I mean, I think what's interesting about Southeast is you do have Rochester there. And so that makes it as a whole a more moderate area as opposed to more conservative. Um, because, you know, Rochester, like as Matt already pointed out earlier, is much more liberal. It's a lot of highly educated people, especially at Mayo Clinic. Uh, and it, you know, it does tend to push that that um, city to the, you know, the left. Um, but the area as a whole is more conservative. And so, again, we've seen that place represented by, um, you know, most recently Tim Walls, right? Tim Walls was a, is a relatively more moderate Democrat. He's now our governor, right? But he, um, I think just as Rick Nolan fit well with the Iron Range, he fit well with that district. Um, and again, because of Rochester, it's close, right? It's possible that that could flip kind of back and forth between uh, Republican and Democrat. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if Jim Hegdorn holds that district. I also wouldn't be surprised if he lost this fall. Um, so it's a, it's one of those ones where you, you know, you could see it kind of going either way. Um, but I guess I don't really see it as that fundamentally different than what we described in greater Minnesota. It's more like it's greater Minnesota with a city in it and the city yeah. um, shifts it. Yeah. Not, and and yeah. yeah, the only thing that Dave uh, Weigel adds um, is that a lot of refugees, thousands of refugees have moved to this area as well. And you get that in the Twin Cities as well. And that yep. tends to, you know, pull, you know, whatever region you're looking at, you know, Democratic. Especially with Trump in the White House, right? Yeah, especially with Trump. Yeah. Sure. Right. Because right, refugees are in like those immigrant populations are interesting, right? Because yeah. some of them are actually much more socially conservative, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, right now it feels like they're being pushed into the arms of the Democratic Party because of where Donald Trump is on immigration. But you could imagine a scenario in which down the road, right, uh, the Republican Party remains socially conservative, finds a way to kind of moderate its position on immigration, and that some of those folks actually shift shift sides right because um there are some affinities yep. on both sides of the aisle so they're they're a really interesting population in terms of kind of where this where this could go and there's yeah. a roadmap for that happening uh yeah cuban population in florida is a perfect example of a refugee population that has remained significantly more conservative and more republican uh yep. most um uh latino um populations uh in the united states Yep. Yeah, well, that's yep. the thing. I mean, we're at a point where you can no longer really think of these as a a, a population, right? The the Latino population or the Latino vote or the immigrant vote or whatever. Like, there's so much diversity and increasing diversity in you know across these groups. Um, you know, that's why you know Trump is way ahead amongst Hispanics, not just Cuban Americans, but Hispanics in Florida. But he's way behind with Hispanics in. Arizona, right? So you have, mm -hmm. you know, there's there's not one sort of Hispanic outlook, not one Hispanic right. politics, right. right? There's a lot of diversity. And I yeah. think, you know, depending on how Trump does in Florida and, and where things go with right. that, I think, you know, if the Republican Party is smart, um, they're going to find ways to pivot um, on some of these issues to try to, you know, to draw in some of these sort of traditionally Democratic voters, draw yep. them into the fold. Um, and if they're able to do that successfully, um, you know, Democrats, um, they, they better watch out. But of course, yep. that assumes that Republicans are going to do that. And all of that is just completely up in the air right now. Right. I think, I mean, it gets to one of these, you know, kind of thinking theoretically political science for a second, right? It gets to one of the things we we know about how parties work and how both how they form and then how they can kind of pivot in new directions, right? And one of the key issues is and what kind of what we call social cleavages do you focus on, right? Um, what matters, right? And I was just talking about this in my party's class um, yesterday, right? I mean, like, 
it is true that there are social cleavages, social divisions amongst us, right, that matter to people um, kind of inherently, right? But it is also true that our perception of how important different divisions are, how much they should be emphasized or de-emphasized is heavily shaped by how our leaders handle it, right? And how they talk about them, right? And so, um, you know, we, we think about like, oh, these are the divisions we have right now. They're absolutely important. We all think that. But what if leaders shift how they're talking about it, what they're prioritizing, what they're, you know, focusing their rhetoric on? Um, that can actually shift things pretty markedly and not necessarily, wouldn't necessarily take a long time, right? Um, if the the kind of narrative in among the leaders changes, right? So I think that's, you know, kind of, it's not going to shift this year, obviously, but it's something to keep an eye on um, going forward. No, I think that's, that's, that's really smart, Andy. I think that the leader has the power to accentuate certain social cleavages and force the, force national conversations. If Donald Trump um, had, really come out in support of Black Lives Matter, not necessarily the organization Black Lives Matter, but right. the internet Black Lives Matter, even though that might there might be significant protests around the country, it probably wouldn't be an electoral issue. But because right. of the stance he's taken, it's become an electorally significant cleavage. And right. I think that, that's, that that matters for this election because of that choice. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I think that's perhaps one of the reasons why, I mean, we've talked about this on previous podcasts, you know, why this might not be the year that Minnesota breaks towards the GOP and the Electoral College, right? So so if you look yeah. at, you know, the, the Minnesota has always gone Democratic, the only state to do so, right? Um, but the margin by which the Democrats have won Minnesota, you know, for the Electoral College has, that margin has decreased every single, um, you know, you know ele presidential election cycle, right? Um, and, you know, is this going to be the year where we tilt over towards the red? And I'm not sure. I mean, there's some recent polling out some, from a couple of really good polls, um, you know, in the past couple of weeks that show, you know, Biden, you know, comfortably ahead of Trump yeah. and actually yeah. sort of padding his lead. Um, yep. So Minnesota looks, you know, even over the past week looks, um, yeah. you know, decreasingly likely like it will sort of break for the GOP this time. And I think part of the reason is that, you know, Trump is has been, you know, very unpopular and polarizing. Um, and this is going to prevent some people who might be um, more at home in the GOP, all other things being equal, is going to prevent them from, you know, deciding to to go with uh, another four years for Donald Trump. But, but in four years, who knows? It kind of depends on, you know, if the Republican Party is able to make um, any changes to, um, to how it how it projects itself. Yeah, I think that's that's right. I mean, I expect Trump to win, you know, the large majority of counties in Minnesota, just as he did last time. He won 78 of the 87. Um, I think he will win handily in the Iron Range again, probably possibly even higher margin. Um, he'll win greater Minnesota big, um, very possibly even southeastern Minnesota, although that could be a toss up. But I think he loses it here in the cities and in the suburbs. Right. I don't think the suburbs. I kind of think that the, the trend we saw in 18 toward the Democratic Party because of that kind of discomfort you just articulated, Matt, but with Trump, um, I think that continues enough, at least, um, that he you know, is going to lose the state. Um, and I, I predict, I mean, like he's going to lose it by more than Hillary Clinton did, won it. Right. And it was um, that, that it will not be as close as it was four years ago. Yeah. Um, that's, that's my guess. I don't, I don't say that Trump's going to win or Biden's going to win by double digits or something, but, but I think he's going to win it pretty easily. And I think one of the things that the articles also noted, I can't remember which one we looked at, they noted, but, um, is that, you know, Minnesota is a high turnout state and that matters for this, right? I think that where Trump could, could, could thread the needle this year is if people are, there's a kind of depressed turnout 
in, you know, say Ilhan Omar's district, right? There's not going to be. It's Minnesota. We are really good at turning out. Um, I think the DFL, you know, despite the, the problems in the out country, is fired up in the cities. And I think that that's going to put them over the line by a fair bit. So, yeah. you know, put me down definitely in the like, yeah, maybe, maybe Minnesota's drifting purple, but they're, they'll, they'll be blue in 2020, I think. So, so should the Golden Gophers be the Purple Gophers? That's my question. I have an update on that, and we'll end with this. <laughs> oh, right. One of the benefits of, of podcasting in our offices, in our suite here, is our voices carry through some of the thinner walls. And so our good I'm not sure that's a benefit, but anyway, go ahead. Uh, <laughs> it's like having a captive audience. Uh, one of our one of our good friends, historian Charlie Goldberg, uh, messaged us the following uh, in the context of this podcast. He wrote, the first University of Minnesota yearbook bearing the name Gopher Annual appeared in 1887. Minnesota's athletic teams became widely known as the Gophers by the 1920s, but it was not until 1934 that Halsey Hall, great Minnesota sports uh, writer and broadcaster, dubbed Bernie Bierman's all-golden uniformed team the Golden Gophers. So basically they were the Gophers, they threw on these golden uh, uniforms, and they got dubbed the Golden Gophers. Here's what I love. Bierman chose the gold color because the football blended in with the uniforms, and he thought this was a strategic <laughs> advantage. Nice. So, I love that it. That explains why Minnesota's football team has been so good. Oh, wait. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they needed any advantage they could get, bless their hearts. I always wondered, like, <clears throat> why the gold on the, like, the weird maroon color? Like, why that combination? It's just, it's it's different. Like, why not just, like, an off-white? But but now I know. So, so to Matt's point, what I'm hearing Charlie. is if we can get somebody to just switch the uniforms to purple, they could be the purple gophers. That could they happen. They could. They could. Actually, the yellow would, the gold would go better with the purple, I think. Yeah, I mean, the big problem with purple, right, is um, we already have the Minnesota Vikings. <laughs> they would look, like, yeah. basically Vikings 2.0, so... Could we could we kind of play off of that and become like the uh, University of Minnesota like Visigoths or something? Uh, <laughs> I don't know if Visigoths where our culture is at right now. <laughs> and on that note, uh, you've been listening to Election Shock Therapy. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, you can always send us questions at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. You can email the channel at channel3900 at gmail.com. Please subscribe to the channel. Besides this podcast, we have lots of other great things, including Avatar with Academics, where Annie Berglund and Sam Mulberry are watching Avatar The Last Airbender and giving it the good old academic analysis. Oh, dear. And I am excited. <laughs> uh, they don't know this, and I'm going to see if Sam is actually listening, but I'm going to watch it along with them. I'm not going to be on the podcast, but I'm just going to see. I'm going to watch this and listen to them talk about it. So, um. And there we have we have bookish at Bethel. We have plenty of other things coming down the pipe. We'll be back in your feed next week. Thanks for listening. Until you hear from us, go Royals. Mm -hmm.